Welcome to the Compounding Center Connections, where we talk about different health conditions with our partnered practitioners. I'm your host, Jay Gill, a compounding pharmacist from the Compounding Center in Leesburg, Virginia. At the Compounding Center, we collaborate with practitioners, create custom medications to help our patients get better. So in this episode, our guest is Dr. Norman Marcus, director of Norman Marcus Pain Institute. Dr. Marcus is also a clinical professor of pain medicine in anesthesiology and neurological surgery at the Wheel Cornell Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Marcus. How's it going? How are you this morning? Good morning. It's a little humid and a little rainy this morning in New York, but otherwise, it's okay. Well, it's early in the morning, eight o'clock. Thank you for joining uh, us on this episode and, uh, uh, you know, being part of this uh, episode. So we're going to talk this morning about um, the use of LDN in patients diagnosed with EDS or Ehlers-Downer's Syndrome. So uh, before we get started, could you please uh, introduce yourself to the viewers and listeners? Well, um, I... I practice in New York City, uh, and I started the first pain center in New York, actually, many years ago uh, at Montefiore Hospital. And then I went on to uh, create an inpatient pain program at Lenox Hill Hospital. And then I was asked to start a pain program in Windsor, England, and uh, traveled to England the one, mo uh, one week a month for three years uh, and uh, ran the pain center there. And I'm still in the, in the NHS. Uh, and then um, I've gone on to be on the faculty at NYU in their pain fellowship. Uh, and currently, I am uh, associate professor, actually, in neurological surgery and anesthesiology at the Spine Center at Cornell, uh, where I teach my colleagues about the importance of muscle and other soft tissue pain, which is often ignored when we look at patients who have pain. Um, I'm a past president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, uh, and um, I've been treating chronic pain patients for my entire career with a focus on uh, muscles, which uh, I believe are overlooked uh, in, in the paradigm. Wow, uh, uh, amazing what you've accomplished so, um, you know, I saw your presentation at the last conference uh, at the LDN uh, conference, and um, I don't know too much about Ehlers-Downer syndrome myself, but I have to say over the last year to couple of years, we're seeing more and more patients at the pharmacy call and chat with me about the syndrome. So it's, it's really nice to have you here and talk to us a little bit about this condition uh, so before we get started, a basic disclaimer to everyone that the information discussed today is for informational purposes only. It's for not, not for diagnosis or treatment. Um, Dr. Marcus, could you kind of uh, start from the beginning and tell us what is EDS syndrome um, to the viewers? So Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a group of inherited uh, connective tissue disorders generally involving uh, skin, joints, and blood vessels. Although it involves every tissue in your body uh, because it's an, um, the problem is that the collagen 
that you have in your body is too stretchy. So collagen is sort of like a building block for all of the organs in the body. No matter what the tissue is, mm -hmm. there's a, an element of collagen that sort of keeps the whole structure together. And if that's too stretchy, then um, it could be an asset. I mean, like, for example, if you were Novak Djokovic, if you any, any of you follow tennis and you watch him take a shot, he could do a split as he's running to take a shot. There's no guy who can do that. You know, I mean, of all the guys that, that we know, that that would be really unusual, right? <clears throat> and yeah. he does it with aplomb. You know, he does it, you know, gracefully. Um, so he has this stretchiness, which is working for him. So he's inherited a certain amount of elasticity in his body. However, that can become problematic. Uh, and that's when it, um, it presents to a doctor. Um, this, when I say it's a group of uh, disorders, there's actually 14 types of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hmm. 13 of them we can identify with a genetic marker. So we could do a genetic sequencing and we could actually see genes that are um, we call variances of the of a normal gene um, accounting for why you present with that type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But the most common type is what we call hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And that accounts for about 90% of the cases. However, that's the only one that we don't have genetic markers. So we can't make the diagnosis by doing genetic testing. We have to do it clinically. We have to just do a physical exam and a history, and that's how we make the diagnosis. And actually, with uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the average time to make the diagnosis is 15 years. Wow. So people have all of these strange symptoms um, for as long as 15 years, and I've seen many doctors and sometimes gotten treatments that just didn't work or maybe even made them worse um, because there wasn't any recognition that the underlying problem was uh, this dysfunction in their collagen. So how do you go um, about diagnosing it? You know, discuss some like signs and symptoms that you come across when you see a new patient in your clinic? So if somebody comes in uh, who has a pain in, in a variety of areas, let's say they, they feel in their neck and their back and their shoulders, quite often these patients have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Oh, right? okay. We're all familiar with that. Yeah. But once again, fibromyalgia is a, a syndrome. Syndrome means not a disease because we don't really have a way of specifically diagnosing it. It's rather a collection of signs and symptoms. So what are our, our symptoms? Symptoms are what you experience and, and tell your doctor. And signs are what the doctor can observe. So we have this sort of checklist, and then we can make the diagnosis based on the checklist for fibromyalgia. However, Many of my patients who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia actually have uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And uh, the way we make the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is to first establish hypermobility as a diagnosis. 
So what is hypermobility? It means that your joints are too flexible. And we have arbitrarily chosen a few joints to test. And that test is called the Baton or Byton scale, B-E-I-G-H-T-O-N scale. And there's nine points on the scale. So what we look at are the elbows. Like if you straighten your arm, does your elbow go beyond straight, right? So we call it hyperextensible elbow. And we would look at the knee also and see, does the knee, when you stand up straight, go beyond straight? So it sort of bends backwards. Um, and we would look at your thumb if it can touch your forearm, if you if you put your wrist forward and try to make your thumb touch your forearm, can you actually do that? Make the thumb touch the forearm. Um, and then we look at your pinky finger and see if we pull it up, does it go to 90 degrees or greater? Oh, could, um, you so, raise your, could you raise your hand uh, a little bit higher? I was watching. Okay, you raise your. No, but you actually, the, the test should be for this for this joint. The, the, okay. The, for if if that joint goes to ninety degrees or greater, that would be a positive. So you have a right and a left on 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 that. So you have the the um, elbow, the knee, the pinky, the thumb. So if you had both sides, that would be eight points. Gotcha. And then the last, the ninth point is if you can put your palms to the floor with your legs straight, you know, reaching down to touch your toes, but you can actually put your palms flat on the floor. Gotcha. And that would be nine points. So that would be nine out of nine on the Baton scale. But all you need is five out of nine um, to be considered hypermobile. Some people... Um, say maybe four out of nine. Um, if you, as you get older, you get stiffer. So um, when you're younger, there's a higher incidence of having a higher score on the Baton scale. Once you have that number, let's say arbitrarily five out of nine, then you have the diagnosis of hypermobility. So if you have hypermobility and don't have any other problems, then you just have you know benign hypermobility. Okay. But if you have problems in terms of pain or difficulties um, with various organ systems, and I'll get into that in a second, uh, then you would be called uh, generalized hyper hypermobile spectrum disorder. Hypermobile spectrum disorder. And we abbreviate that to HSD, hypermobile spectrum disorder. And then if I want to consider that this is actually Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a, a group of experts got together and uh, this was in, in New York in 2016 and came up with a list of questions. And if you answered five or, or had five observations uh, of this list of 12 questions, then you would segue from hypermobile spectrum disorder into Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So that 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 list I have it here. I'll just read it. So it's like unusually velvety skin, hmm. um, mild skin hyperextensibility, meaning it, let's say if I could pull the skin over the top of my hand to cover my thumb, if it was that stretchy, like yeah, you see here, I could pull 
I'm pulling up the skin here. If it uh, moves enough so it covers my thumb, I would say that's mild skin hyperextensibility. Um, if I had stretch marks growing up, like in adolescence, uh, on, on, on the breast or on the thigh, um, for no reason, there wasn't any dramatic weight change, but I just had these stretch marks, that would be another positive. Um, if there are little bumps on your heels when you stand um, or up and they go away when you lift up um, your heel so there's no pressure on it, that's called a piezogenic papule. Mm-hmm. That's another criteria. If you've had hernias, recurrent hernias, that would be another one. If the scars that you have on your body um, have a, a divot, like if you could sort of put your finger into the scar rather than have that thickening that a, a normal scar would have, we yeah. call that atrophic scarring. And if the skin in the scar is very thin, we call it papyracious, meaning paper thin scar. That's another criteria. If there's been a prolapse of the cervix or the rectum where they, where they pop out um, for, for no reason, that would be another criteria. If you were told that you had too many teeth when you were growing up and had to have an extraction of teeth or that your palate was very high and narrow, that's another criteria. If you have long, thin fingers, we call it arachnodactyly, spider fingers. Gotcha. And, and if you can put your thumb inside your fist so that it goes beyond the opposite side and it sticks out beyond the edge of the uh, hand, uh, that's called a, a Steinberg sign. And if you can touch your pinky to your thumb around around your wrist, that's called the Walker Murdoch sign. That would be another criteria. And then if you measure your arms, the length from fingertip to fingertip, if it's hot, more than the length of your body from the, from the top of your head to your toes, um, that would be another criteria. And, and there's a, a, a ratio there. If it's 1.05 or greater, where your arms are slightly longer, that would be the criteria. If you had an echocardiogram and you had mitral valve prolapse, that would be another criteria. Or if you had dilated aortic root. So if you had five of that list, then you would segue from hypermobile spectrum disorder to hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But essentially, there's no difference uh, in terms of your clinical presentation, in terms of your, your life and what you would expect and problems you may come up against, we don't really see any major difference. And you have to remember that this is sort of an arbitrary list that was brought together with a group of experts uh, saying, well, let's let's just decide that this is how we're going to make the diagnosis. We don't really have the genetic marker. When we have a genetic marker, then it's going to be more precise uh, and we'll, we'll be able to have um, more homogeneous groups of patients, and we'll be able to study it better. Right now, we know that it's probably more than one gene. Um, and the other types, like hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, is the most prominent type because it's 90%. The other types that we see um, less commonly, like called classical uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, um, the, the stretchy skin is more profound. Um, 
uh, and uh, in the vascular type, um, we don't see the hypermobility as much, but we see uh, blood vessels being very stretchy and problems with patients having aneurysms, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, a, a, like a baby on a tire in the old days when we had you know, tires on our bicycles, yeah. you know, and it would be like an uh, an outpouching yeah. you know, on the vessel, what's called an aneurysm. And if that bursts, obviously you can be in trouble or, yeah. you know, or lose your life. So it's very important to make sure that you don't have the vascular type. But th thankfully, it's rare. Um, and, um, you know, we have more awareness of, of, of how to manage that problem um but for the most part you know in our discussion we'll be talking about hypermobile or stainless syndrome so one of the things you touched upon that you know this uh their pain as being one of the major symptoms that you know they have yes the two the two major symptoms are pain and fatigue okay and so uh, so how do you go about then manage these patients their pain and uh, fatigue or depression that comes along just being in pain uh, with the syndrome. How do you go about, you know, managing these patients? Right. So it's 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 sort of it's interesting and and challenging and a bit complicated. So when we have pain, typically, let's say you uh, you broke your arm. Yeah. And so it hurts like hell, and you cast it and it heals in six weeks, um, and then it feels a little bit stiff, and then you have some physical therapy or you exercise, and it gets better. So we all understand that. You have some injury, you have pain, it gets better. But there are situations where we have pain that persists. You know, we call it chronic pain, um, in, in, in contrast to acute pain, where we know there's an injury, there's a healing phase and you're better. Yeah. The chronic pain, it persists and it creates certain changes in your nervous system. Um, what happens is when you're in pain, you stimulate certain cells in your nervous system called glia. And um, amongst the glia, there are different types of glia. Um, the, the glia are the sort of structural cells in the nervous system. They don't transmit information like the normal neurons, right? In the, in the nervous system, we have nerves that tell us we're, sense, we're sensing a touch or some damage, or we have neurons that uh, allow our muscles to move. So we have, we call them sensory and motor neurons, okay? But then we have these cells, which are not neurons. They are like Legos. They're sort of structural cells. And the neurons wrap around these structural cells. But these structural cells produce a lot of uh, chemicals in our body. And the ones that are most, um, um, most focused on when we think about chronic pain are microglia. And these microglia get stimulated if you've been in pain for any uh, sustained period of time. And when they get stimulated, they produce chemicals called cytokines, which cause inflammation in your body. We call them pro-inflammatory cytokines. 
And so they can give you sort of like diffuse achiness that you might experience on top of specific achiness. Ah, okay. So you you have this sort of challenge now, like where's it coming from? You know, you just sort of hurt all over. And when my patients first come in to see me and they I ask them where the pain is, it quite often will I say, oh, it's around my my shoulder. Without they can't really put their finger on it clearly. But if you ask them, you know, well, really think about it. Where's the worst? Well, maybe over here, but I, but it's really generalized in an, in a region, and that often is a result of what's happening from the microglial involvement. We call that centrally mediated pain, right? Pain that's coming from inside that I'm experiencing on the outside of my body. Gotcha. So that's coming from microglia. And it's also coming from another cell in our body called the mast cell. Mm-hmm. And um, so the I'm gonna we're gonna put that aside for a second, the mast cell. Okay. okay? And we're gonna stay with the microglia. So so now we have this phenomena of central sensitization, but we know that with hypermobile or Lustanlos syndrome, we have loose joints. So in the history, patients will tell you, oh, yeah, I, I dislocated my shoulder when I was a kid a few times, um, and it still clunks. So we call that subluxing. It doesn't have a full dislocation where it's like locked and I can't move and it's killing me, but rather I can feel it clunking around, and that we call it subluxing. So we have dislocations and subluxations. Well, that's very irritating to the nerves and tissue around the joint. So the muscles around the joint start to stiffen up. And when they stiffen up, they squeeze their own blood supply. And when they squeeze their own blood supply, you get less oxygen to these muscles. And when you have less oxygen in the muscle, it makes that muscle painful. So now you start to have the experience of pain what you may think is coming from your joint but often is the muscle surrounding the joint so it's not actually the joint itself although it could be the joint especially if that joint was dislocating over and over again it can start to get changes we call degenerative changes and you can get arthritic changes in the joint so that would be one reason but more often, it's the muscle surrounding the joint um, because of this um, pull on these muscles because the joint is so unstable. So we have that specific pain coming from those specific joints and the muscles surrounding those joints on top of the centrally mediated pain coming from the microglia. So ideally... What you'd want to do is be able to suppress the centrally mediated pain. Yeah. So you could sort of clear the playing field, right? And we can have a, a, a more um, clear understanding of what you're experiencing and say, oh, yeah, I don't feel as much achiness now, but I'm really 
aware of this specific spot here. Like that, this is really hurting me now because I don't have any any um, confounding experience. I mean, it's all um, it's clear now. I see it's not my whole body, but it's rather much more in uh, in my shoulder or my neck or my back or or what have you. So that so ideally. That's what you'd like to do, to figure out some way to suppress what's happening from the centrally mediated pain so that you could then move on to address the what we call the peripherally mediated pain, the pain that's coming from tissue on the outside, specifically mm-hmm. um, in, in my perspective, coming from muscle, which is often overlooked. So uh, for the sake of time, how about, could you, uh, so you talked about mast cell and uh, pain, centrally mediated pain from the microglia. Yeah. Is that the reason that you're lo- uh, the low-dose naltrexone or the very low-dose naltrexone is a great tool that you use kind of in your practice? Yeah, so it's a standard of care. Okay. So if somebody, if somebody comes in and they have this diffuse pain, diffuse and symmetrical, it's okay. very interesting that you'll see it on the right side and the left side. And it didn't start out that way. They'll tell you historically, oh, no, it was much more in my ankle or my calf or my thigh. Um, and then it sort of spread. Uh, and that's it. That would be typical. And often, you know, this, the history starts back like when they're five years old. They started to have rolled ankles, you know, and then they had pain in their knee and then maybe some pain in their shoulder. Um, and, it, and it spread. Um, and when they went to to their parents or and they went to the doctor doctors nothing wrong with you yeah you know so you're fine and then you know you, you start to question yourself and then doctors well maybe you're an anxious kid maybe you need to learn how to manage your stress or maybe you know you're trying to look for an excuse not to go to school and it really has a profound effect on your development in terms of emotional development because you start to have mistrust in yourself and others. I mean, is what I'm experiencing real? Yeah. I mean, is it in my head or am I really feeling this? And then we know and it took 15 years for most people to have their diagnosis made. So you live with this your whole life and you start to normalize your pain. You say, well, it's just, I just have normal pain. Doesn't everybody have pain? <laughs> well, no, everybody doesn't have pain. And it's not normal to have pain. Um, uh, so, you know, obviously this would be a whole other discussion, but just yeah. to, sh- to talk about w- what a challenge it is for those people who are born with this problem with earlier standoff syndrome, uh, that it affects, you know, personality and, 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 and intimacy and the, the capacity to trust other people. And, um, and then, and of course the whole issue of suffering. So, so if we had a drug that could suppress the microglia, that would be fantastic. And LDN can do that. Low-dose naltrexone can do that. And um, so how much do, do, you, do you, does your audience know about low-dose naltrexone? I and mean, how should we talk about it? Uh, well, um, you know, uh, a good place would be if you could just talk to us about how uh, the benefits you've seen of using LDN that, you know, that, that'll trigger... Uh, you know, to learn more about LDN and its use. So I know you use uh, very low dose and low dose naltrexone in your practice. 
Yeah. Uh, just talk how beneficial it has been once you added that. You right. Know, so, so I, I have many patients who uh, come in to see me and I said, you know, have you ever been on low dose naltrexone? I said, oh, yes, it didn't work. Oh, really? So what would, uh, well, how was it given to you? Well, 4.5 milligrams. Yeah. Okay. Didn't work. Okay. So we use 0.1 milligram to start. So I have patients who respond to 0.1 milligram. And if I gave them 4.5 milligram, it would have zero effect or actually make them worse. Because low dose naltrexone is what we call a hormetic drug. H-O-R-M-E-T-I-C, which means at a low dose, it's effective, but at a higher dose, it's not effective or has the opposite effect. Okay. So how do I know what your dose is? If I look on uh, on the internet, it says 4.5 milligrams. Yeah. Or it says, oh, no, it's 3 milligrams. Or no, some say, oh, no, it's 1.5 milligrams. Or some will say, no, it's 0.5 and increase by 0.5. And then you'll find out what the answer is. But what happens if it's somewhere between 0.5 and 1? Yeah. Is that possible? Absolutely. So half of my patients, their effective dose, which we call the maximally effective dose, is 2 milligrams or less. Half of my patients. Gotcha. And... So how do I establish what your dose is? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is that the dose is what we call idiosyncratic. Idiosyncratic means everybody's dose is different. There is no dose. So if you were given a dose and it didn't work, you don't know if LDN is not going to work. You have no way of knowing. The only way of knowing is to slowly titrate up starting with a very low dose. And what our titration schedule is to start with 0.1 milligram, or it will be 100 micrograms or 0.1 milligrams, the same thing. And we would go up every third day by another 0.1 milligram. And what we're looking for is when you start to experience generalized decreased pain. So I'm, oh, I don't feel as achy all over. So that's what you're looking for. And what's interesting, at the same time, many of our patients also say, you know, I feel a little bit more upbeat, a little bit more energy, more like outgoing. Yeah. And those two phenomena of diffuse pain and of feeling like ill and not wanting to interact much are from specific cytokines. The cytokines that are labeled um, interleukin a 1B and interleukin 6. So interleukin 6 gives us what we call hyperalgesia and interleukin 1B has been associated with what we call illness behavior where you feel like, I don't feel like talking right now. I'm tired. I just got to rest. I don't want to go out tonight. That can all be reversed or diminished with the uh, low-dose naltrexone. And that's from blocking a certain receptor on the microglia called toll-like receptor number four. And if we block that receptor, then we don't allow these cytokines to be produced. 
And then we can be in a state where we've suppressed centrally mediated pain and then can move on to address peripherally um, generated pain. Now, the LDN also blocks toll-like receptor on other cells, specifically mast cells. So mast cells have that same receptor, like the microglia, and when we take it, we can help downregulate the mast cell, make the mast cell less hyperactive. So what are the mast cells? Mast cells are cells in our body that are activated when there's any threat to the body. Like if you have an infection um, or if you have a, a parasite um, or uh, even stress, um, or if there was some damage in your body, mast cells get activated to help clean up the mess. So these have been around forever, the mast cells, and they've been ignored pretty much by medicine, even though they're quite important. And now there's really an upsurge in interest uh, in the mast cell. And um, so the mast cell can give you symptoms um, in your skin. They can give you uh, hives and, and itchiness. Um, it can give you asthma-like symptoms where it's hard to take a deep breath. It can give you GI symptoms like uh, uh, diarrhea, constipation, belly pain. Um, it, it can give you um, uh, brain fog. Um, so it can uh, give you problems with uh, your heart, with the blood pressure and pulse and uh, getting dizzy from your blood pressure, dropping too much called dysautonomia, where the autonomic nervous system uh, is is impaired. Um, and it's so it could be involved in in all of these organ systems. And so if we can suppress the mast cell with the LDN, that's great. And then we can also address the product of the mast cell, which is mostly histamine. Is, is the, a major product that's involved with many of these issues that I, I just mentioned to you about skin and GI tract. Um, so we can use antihistamines, typical antihistamines like Claritin, Allegra, Zyrtec, and we can, uh, which are blocking one of the receptors uh, for histamine, histamine one receptor. And then there's another receptor, histamine two receptor in the gut that we can block with famotidine, with pepsin. And so these are easily obtained medications that can help with symptoms that may be really disabling to you. And, and you can get a lot of help from really simple stuff with, with minimal side effects. Um, and then there's a third drug that we use uh, blocking another chemical from the mast cell called leukotrienes, yeah. which are another inflammatory substance. And we can use a, a drug called Monte Lucast or Singular. Um, and that can help for these asthmatic type symptoms. And these three drugs together are often used by uh, physicians who are treating patients who have mast cell. And, and the, the term that we use is mast cell activation syndrome. Uh, uh, so uh, that will be a whole other discussion. Yeah. <laughs> but but just to, to recognize that it's all working together to give you 
uh, a multitude of symptoms that may be all related back to the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And how is it all related back? Well, we did a study. Um, we, we had access to um, uh, Watson. So Watson was this attempt to gather a large number of patient records by IBM. So they actually had 55 million patient records. Wow. And then to analyze those records to see if you see patterns of presentation for various illnesses. So we could put in signs and symptoms for a patient and then the computer could, could toss out what are the possible diagnoses. Well, it, it turned out to be very challenging and um, IBM subsequently sold the database to Accenture and it, uh, we had um, executives from Accenture uh, on our board of directors for our foundation called Foundation for Research and Advocacy for Muscle Pain Education because myself and some colleagues were very concerned that we don't really teach about muscle pain. Uh, so we created this foundation. And we so the foundation had access to the database. And we asked the database, how often does one see mast cell problems in patients who have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome versus the population that doesn't have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? Yeah. And so patients who have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome are six times more likely to have mast cell activation syndrome. So it's very common um, in, our, in that patient population and really should always be considered as a contributing factor um, in patients who are presenting with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So basically you have to treat uh, the pain aspect and the mast cells also at the same time. Right, but the mast cells are gonna be contributing to the pain. Yeah. So it, it becomes like a challenge, like, well, what, what is this pain that you're experiencing? Yeah. You know, where is it coming from? Is it central or is it peripheral? Yeah. And is it also related to different organ systems contributing to the final common pathway of I hurt? Yeah. That's, uh, uh, I love it the way you just uh, put it all together. It, it, it all it came together just now in this very last moment, um, uh, how, what these patients are dealing with and how you kind of actually approach uh, the treatment, you know. Um, Dr. Marcus, you know, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. You know, I mean, there's a, a wealth of information that you shared with us. Um, now, how can somebody reach out to you uh, you know, if they want to have further discussions with you. Sure. Well, so my my office, um, our, our office number is 212-532-7999. Um, but we have a website with a lot of information. You could read for hours on the website. There, I've done a number of blogs um, uh, that address many of these issues that we discussed today. And... Um, and then there's some uh, some videos. We did um, a presentation from Cornell um, on it's on YouTube uh, on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Okay. Um, and that's that's available. Uh, and so uh, you know, just reach out to us, and uh, you know, we'd be happy to uh, well, uh, to interact. 
I'll make sure in our uh, show notes, we put your contact information and your uh, website link and your YouTube uh, video uh, that you're talking about for people to have. And once again, thank you uh, everyone for tuning into the Compounding Center Connections podcast. We hope you found this information presented to you be helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at j at compoundingcenter.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel, The Compounding Center Connections, and stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you very much, Dr. Marcus. My pleasure. Thank you, Jay. Thank you.